Acts chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 1. This is the Word of God spoken by His Spirit to His church. And this portion of Scripture is a portion of Scripture that I believe is so so very important for us in these last days. So although we'll be discussing some things that are a little bit difficult perhaps to understand, to comprehend, to uh, really absorb in all of this detail, I encourage you to open your hearts to what the Spirit is saying to the church in these last days through this word that we're about to look at today. Before I go into specifically the reading of Acts chapter 2, I'd like to begin first by taking you to the last verses of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 16. Turn there with me. And it's there that we read some of the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. We saw that Luke had recorded some things that Jesus said before he ascended in both the Gospel of Luke and in this book of Acts in chapter 1. But in Mark's Gospel, he says a few things a little differently. And I want to point out some of the things that are indicated by Mark that Jesus said would be the result of his Holy Spirit coming upon the believers. Beginning with verse 15 of Mark chapter 16, we read these words, And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's a tall order for a group of 11 men who did not really know very much about what they should expect with regard to the promises of God And even then, they were believing that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem and sit on David's throne, and they were going to be, they thought, co-regent with the Lord in Jerusalem physically. It certainly did not turn out that way, and Jesus had to set them straight. First of all, understand this, Jesus said, you need to go out into all the world, not stay in Jerusalem, but you're going to reach out into every corner of the known world. The entire Roman Empire needs to hear this and beyond. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then he said this, which is so very important in verse 16. He who believes, and that would be just the 11 apostles, obviously. There could not be any further need to expand on that phrase, he who believes. Of course, if you believe that, then you may not want to listen to the rest of this reading that we've got before us. He wasn't just speaking to only the eleven here. He was speaking about all who would ultimately believe. Not only in that generation, not only in the few decades following, but until this present hour, we are part of that group of individuals that Jesus spoke of, if we have put our trust in Jesus for salvation, deliverance from our sins, then we are members of the body of Christ and we are included in this statement found here in verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe 
will be condemned. Jesus saw only in two different directions, two choices are available. Either you are or you are not a believer. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. Jesus was very, very factual. This is the only two options that anyone can have. Either you believe or you don't. Either you are saved or you are condemned. And he leaves a choice to anyone, everyone. It's not his doing, it's our doing that puts us into one or the other of those two categories. And then in verse 17, he tells us some very specific things that will result in our believing in him. Look at what he says and read it carefully with me. He says in verse 17, And these signs, there are signs that will follow those who believe. Isn't that interesting? He says that we'll be able to show others what we believe and why we believe, and he's going to provide signs so that others will see that what we believe is indeed the truth. And here are the signs. In my name, he says, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, you've probably heard some Pentecostal preachers kind of emphasize that, in the name of Jesus. Well, you know, we don't have to do that. It's just simply, in His name. It means, by the way, we have the authority as His ambassadors on this planet Earth to speak in His name, on behalf of Him. That's what it means. So when we speak in the name of Jesus, one thing is for sure, we better get it right. We better be absolutely sure that we are speaking what Jesus would say, because if we're not, then we're not truly His representatives here on this earth. But He says, in the name of Jesus, in My name, they, the believers, will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. These are remarkable statements by our Savior. Now I submit to you, and I hope you understand, I'm not trying to downplay the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. But I do not believe that every one of us have experienced all or even any of these things that he has mentioned here. Take a look again. First of all, he says they will cast out demons. Now, I believe that that's something that we can do. I'm not trying to find a demon to cast them out, though. I'm not looking for them. I'm trying to serve the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and trusting in Him that He will protect me from the onslaught of the enemy. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that we are to put on the whole armor of God. We put on the helmet of our salvation. The shield of faith is before us. The sword of the Spirit is in our hand. The breastplate of righteousness. Our belt of truth. The gospel. The preparation of the gospel on the soles of our feet. That's the armor that we put on. And why do we put it on? Those things to go out and fight the enemy. No, it does not say that. Paul simply says in Ephesians chapter 6 that though we have these principalities and powers that are against us, we are to use those things that He provides and stand. He says, again, stand. Not fight, not swing that sword, but 
demonstrate that you are one of His by wearing that armor. And he tells us simply in that passage in, in the book of Ephesians that when we do stand, we will quench the fiery darts of the enemy. He tries to attack, but he can't get anywhere with you. He has nothing on you because he had nothing on Jesus. But that does not mean that we're supposed to go out and engage in the battle. The Bible tells us very clearly, the battle belongs to the Lord. When Michael the archangel fought over Moses' body, he didn't try to fight Satan away. He just simply said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael was respectful of the fact that God is the one who has ultimate control over the enemy's forces, including Satan himself. That's encouraging to me. But he says, they shall cast out demons. And yes, I believe that that is very, very much something that needs to be a focus. Then we have to deal with it. And in our culture, the way things are going, I don't know if perhaps there may be some of that that will be necessary among the brethren. But he would have to equip us. He would have to empower us to do so. It's not in our own standing. It's not in our own strength. It's not by our own wisdom. We have to trust in God to provide all of that in order for us to be effective in whatever ministry, in whatever work that we do. And it could include that. But next he says, and they will speak with new tongues. And I submit to you again, not everybody does. But he says, if they believe, they will speak in new tongues. Is he wrong? No. He is not wrong. Perhaps we are wrong in our understanding of what he means by this. Well, we'll look into some of that today. And I'm not here to preach a sermon on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm here to tell you what the Word of God says with regard to the power that is available to us to serve Him, to do His will, to be effective in the ministry that He's called us to, whatever that ministry might happen to be. But He goes on to say, they will take up serpents, and they, if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. I know of one instance where that would have been fulfilled in the Scriptures. When Paul was on his third missionary journey, or correction, it was on his first, I believe, missionary journey. He was in an island, I believe it was Miletus. And it was, it was a third missionary journey. I'm going backwards. It was a th third missionary journey because they were shipwrecked and they came on this island. And when they, all of them were safe on the island, they began to build a fire and Paul was collecting firewood for the fire and a serpent came up out of the flame and bit him. And everybody saw it and they said, he must have been guilty of some great crime because God is now punishing for that. Well, he shook off the servant, serpent and he kept on going. He didn't swell up. He didn't fall. He just kept on going. Nothing harmed him. And they looked at that and they said, this must be God. So the serpent bit him. But it doesn't mean that we're to go out looking for serpents that we can demonstrate because I'm a Christian, this serpent isn't going to harm me. That's not what God's Word tells us. We are told never 
never to tempt our God. And that is a temptation of God. Go ahead, God, prove your word by letting me get bit by this serpent and prove to everybody here that the word of God is true. I don't know how many people have died doing that, but it's not a good method. It's not a good way to teach the word of God. It's not what God meant when he said these things. Not everybody is going to have that experience. And so it is with all of these. It's not necessary that everyone should have these experiences. But he says that these experiences will be known among those who believe. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I believe that's something that we all should expect. Pray for it. James tells us if someone is sick among us, he's to go to the elders and to lay hands on him. And the prayer of faith shall heal him. I believe in the healing that God provides. I've seen God heal. I've known his healing power in my own life and in the others of dear friends who have experienced the same thing. God's healing power is real. He comes with healing in his wings, the Bible says. By His stripes we are healed, the Bible says. So healing is a very real thing. It happens. Does it happen all the time? I submit to you that it does not. I know people who have died of cancer. I know people who have been very ill with all kinds of different infirmities and they've relied on the ability of men to provide some means to get over that particular illness through medication, through surgery, through whatever technological advances we have been able to make. God uses those things. Was it God healing in that case? Well, you know, He provided the means by which a person could recover, but it wasn't a miraculous healing that we would have hoped for, that we would ask for. That does not mean that we shouldn't stop asking for God to heal. When somebody comes to me, and I hope to you, and says, I've got this issue with my body, something's going on, would you pray for me? Pray the prayer of faith with that individual. Believe that God is able to heal, and pray that He is willing to do so. And when He does, give glory to God. So yes, those are the things that Jesus said would be occasionally happening, but He doesn't use the word occasionally, does He? But He does say, these are all going to be signs that you are a believer. And that is what we want to see in the church today. Signs from the Holy Spirit of God that we are indeed Christ's family. Children of the Most High God. When Jesus left, according to Luke, he told his disciples who were present at his ascension, wait in Jerusalem until the power that was promised unto you, that power that we just read about in the Gospel of Mark, that power that was mentioned in John's Gospel, that power of the Holy Spirit would come at his time and in his way. Jesus said, Wait there in Jerusalem until you receive that power from on high. They had no idea what that looked like. They had no concept of what to expect. Jesus didn't give them all the details. 
They just knew that they were going into Jerusalem and they were to gather together and wait until they receive that power. That's faith. That's taking the promises of God and letting that promise manifest itself in its time. We don't push it along. We don't make it happen. We just let God fulfill what He has promised at the time of His choosing. That's what they were doing. They were gathered together in an upper room, we're told. They waited, and they waited. They prayed. They sought the Lord. They made supplication. They wanted to hear what's next. They wanted to know what's going to happen. But the first day, nothing seems to have taken place. The second day, they still didn't feel like they had received what was promised. The third day, by then, perhaps it was around that time that Peter made the proclamation, as we read last time, that one man had to replace Judas Iscariot. So they did some work while they were there. They prayed about that. They did what I believe was the right thing for them to do under those circumstances. They trusted in the Lord for the results. But they did not receive the power of the Holy Spirit that was promised. They were still waiting. The next day came, and still, no evidence. Five days, six days, seven days. I wonder, by the seventh day, do you think perhaps they were wondering by them the fact that nothing had taken place? What are we really here for? What's this all about? Did we misunderstand what Jesus had said? Do you think they were starting to ask questions? I believe that if I had been among them, I might have been thinking that kind of thought. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time waiting. I have a hard time just sitting down and saying, Okay, Lord, okay, that's time. Are you sure you said that? Uh, wait, Lord, I, what's the delay? What, what do I need to do? Am I, am I sinning? Is, is that why you've forsaken me? Have you left me? Have you forgotten me? Here I am, Lord. You go read through the Psalms. You'll see that question often. Why have you forsaken us, O God? Why have you left us? Why have you not responded to our great need? I think that perhaps some of them might have been thinking those thoughts. God is so good. You know, in our midweek studies on Thursdays, we're in the book of Joshua. Great chapter 6 that we just finished. The defeat, the conquest of Jericho. Realize the people of Israel were in kind of the same place at that particular time in their history. They were told by Joshua, okay, here's a battle plan. Seven priests take seven trumpets, take the Ark of the Covenant, and go outside the walls of Jericho, have some of the army in front of the Ark, have some of the army behind the Ark, and go around the entire city of Jericho, and blow the shofar, the trumpet, one time, and then come back to camp. Okay, that sounds kind of fun. Next day, day two. Okay, everybody, same deal. Go around the city in the same way, end your trafficking around the city, blow the trumpets, go back to camp. What? Two days of this? Why? What's purpose in that. Where are the battering rams? Where are the siege mounds? How are we going to go into the city? Is the gate going to be open for us to sneak in at night? They didn't have a clue what was to be expected, but they were obedient. 
They went around the third day, and then the fourth, fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. And he tells them, now on the seventh day, you go around the city seven times. And each time you go around, they blow the trumpet. On the seventh circuit, when they blow the trumpet, everybody shout. And when they did that, by faith, on the seventh day, the walls fell down. But they had to wait until God's time not theirs. Think of Naaman. He was a general of the Assyrian army. He had leprosy. But he had a servant girl from Israel who said, Hey, there's a prophet in Israel who can take your leprosy away. Naaman was all for that. So he got together a whole entourage of faithful men with him, traveled down to the place where Elijah was, And Elijah didn't even come out to meet him. He sent his servant out. And his servant told him, Elijah said, dip yourself into the water seven times. And on the seventh time, you will be healed. Naaman was furious. I've traveled all that way to hear from this prophet of Israel to say that I need to dip in the river Jordan seven times to be healed. Our waters are much cleaner than the... Jordan River, he just, it made no sense to him. But his men argued with him, saying, Look, what difference does it make? Try it out. See if it will do what he has promised. You have nothing to lose. So Naaman condescended. And I'm sure he probably was not really very excited about stepping into the waters of the Jordan. And he did what he was told. Obedience. Stepped into the water, dipped in the water, came back up the first time, still leper. Does it a second time, still a leper. A third time, still a leper. Do you think by that time he might have been thinking, this is useless, this is so dumb, I'm embarrassed. Why, why am I here? What am I doing this for? But he looked at his men, encouraged them. Do it some more. He said seven times. All right. The fifth time. The sixth time. What do you think might have gone through his mind on the seventh time? I'm convinced he was thinking, it hasn't worked for these six times. It's not going to work on this seventh time either. But he did it. He dipped into the waters, and when he came out, the leprosy was gone. Amazing story. But what did he do? He trusted, not in his own intellect, but he allowed the promise of the prophet to sink into his mind, into his heart. And he began to understand at that moment that the God of Israel is indeed faithful. He does what he says he will do. Naaman became a believer. There are very, very few Gentiles who are given that particular experience of having faith in the God of Israel. There are some. And many of them had more faith than the people of Israel did. Naaman is one of those. Jesus commended Naaman. And he condemned the Jews who should have believed. But the point of this is, Naaman waited all that seven times. Didn't go ahead of the Lord. Didn't give up on the Lord. But he did what was commanded of him. And God rewarded him. 
These men in the upper room and women, 120 or so people, were praying. They were doing what God had commanded them to do. Simple instruction. Go and wait in Jerusalem. Rather long introduction, but the words that read from this second chapter of Acts are so, so very important to us. As we have a background now of what they might have been thinking and expecting. But what they received was nothing like they thought. Read with me. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now I want to say a couple of things about that one verse. It tells us, and the reading that I have before me is the New King James. It's very similar to the King James. It's, kept, it's more modernized language. But it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now in other translations, the New American Standard, the NIV, and several of the others, the ESV if you have it, all just say, when the day of Pentecost came. Now there's a distinction between what I read and what some of those other translations imply. What I read is something much more forceful. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now the original Greek word that is used in all of those translations, it's the same Greek word. Luke uses it only one other time in Luke chapter 9, and he talks about the, 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 the fulfillment of that which he was speaking of in that passage. And that's a proper use of, a technical use of that word that he uses here. The Greek word, and it's too long for me to pronounce, and I'm not going to try to convince you that I know the Greek language, because I don't, but the Greek word does very, very emphatically, most generally mean fulfillment. So, it says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now, it can be translated, come. But Luke uses a different word for the word come everywhere else that the word come is mentioned in his writings. He uses this special word for this particular occasion. And I ask you, do you know why? Well, good. I'm going to tell you why. Each one of the feasts of Israel, starting from the first feast, the feast of Passover, followed by unleavened bread and first fruits, those three feasts happened in the spring. We've seen them come and go. Every year, the Jews offer up a sacrifice, or they used to, for the Passover lamb as a sacrifice. It was a picture of a greater fulfillment. It was a picture of Christ himself. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, Christ is our Passover. He is the fulfillment of the Passover feast which was just a picture of, a shadow of that which was promised that would come, and it came in the person of Jesus Christ. So too, with both unleavened bread and with first fruits, Jesus was the fulfillment of those particular feasts. Unleavened bread, because he was without sin, and leaven is a type or a picture of sin. Unleavened bread was offered up as a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ, as the unleavened, sinless Savior, was offered up unto the Lord. And then, 
He was also the fulfillment of first fruits. Again in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, it is Christ, our first fruits, who died for us and was raised from the dead. And that having been raised from the dead, he fulfilled that feast of first fruits. He is our first fruits, the first to have been raised from the dead in resurrection power. More to come. And that's part of what we'll be looking at today. The Feast of Pentecost was the next feast to be celebrated. It happened at a very specific time in the calendar of the Jewish year. First fruits always happened on the first day of the week following Passover. Sunday. Always a Sunday. And then the people of Israel in the book of Leviticus chapter 23 were told to count 50 days from that feast of first fruits and they were to observe the fourth feast of the year. And that fourth feast is the feast of what we call Pentecost. They just simply called it the Feast of Weeks. But it's 50 weeks, or 50 rather days, and it's the reason we call it Pentecost. In the Greek, Penta is 50. So it is a celebration that they were required to come to Jerusalem for. The only other two that they were required to come to Jerusalem for was the Passover and Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets included in that particular time frame in the fall. But here we have the fourth feast, late June, or rather late May, early June, happens every year on a Sunday, 50 days after the Day of First Fruits. Why is it significant? Because if the first three feasts were indeed fulfilled, and they were by Jesus Christ in all that he accomplished at the cross and in his resurrection, then the fourth feast likely has some kind of fulfillment as well. And I submit to you that that fulfillment is presented here in this passage that we're reading here today. That's why I believe that it's so very important to understand the focus of Luke when he says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. It was in fulfillment of that which was a picture in the Old Testament. And throughout the history of the Jews, that day was set aside as a special day for a special event that would be a fulfillment of the picture that was presented to his people through that feast. I hope that's clear. Because Christ fulfilled, either through himself or by his Holy Spirit, those four feasts in a miraculous, wonderful, exactly on the same day way, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. Remember, we looked at that the last time. With one accord, they were together, they were united, they had faith in what God had promised. They were waiting and they were anticipating. They were with one accord and not deviating from what they were told to do. That's a good place for the church to be. We talked about the last time. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together with one accord in one place. And suddenly, mark that word, it happened in an instant, in a moment of time. They weren't sure when it was going to take place. They were waiting all that many days. And it happens to be ten days, not seven, but ten full days. On the tenth day, then suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. As of, and that means kind of like, as of 
a rushing mighty wind. It wasn't a rushing, rushing mighty wind. They didn't experience a tornado in the room. It sounded like a rushing mighty wind to them. Some phenomenon, it's supernatural, it took place, and they were aware of what was going on. They had no explanation for it. It sounded like a rushing mighty wind. And not only that, it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The entire building must have been completely overwhelmed with the sound of this rushing mighty wind sound. But no evidence of wind was present. They weren't getting blown around by it like they would with a tornado or a hurricane. They were all sitting in place, and this is what they had heard. So their ears were somehow given this supernatural ability to hear something that didn't make any sense physically. That's only part of it. Verse 3 says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Again, the same implication. Like fire. It wasn't fire. We sing the song, Refine us today. Purify us. Refiner's fire. It, it, we, we sing that and it's a good thing to sing. But that's not what they were experiencing here. A lot of Pentecostal churches talk about the baptism by fire. And they use this passage as an example. Well, I submit to you that when John the Baptist talked about Jesus coming to baptize with fire, he was talking about a judgment, not a blessing. Read it for yourselves. In John's Gospel, it's given there very clearly. The baptism with fire isn't a blessing for the church. It is a judgment of the lost. So what does it mean here? As of fire. It just simply means that that's what it appeared. They saw something that looked like fire on their heads. Divided tongues. Or in some of your translations, tongues that are distributed upon each one's head. Either, either translation is accurate. But it appeared on every single one of them. That's significant. And I'll explain that in a moment. It appeared on them as a fire, and one sat on each one of them. And, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They all began to speak with other tongues. I'm going to stop for a moment and use some little tiny bit of knowledge about the Greek language that I do have. The word that is translated tongues here is glossa, or glossais in the plural form. It means languages. Everywhere else in the Word of God, it's translated languages. Whenever you see the word tongues, that word in the Greek, you'll also see the same word, languages. Again, in the Pentecostal realm, you have a form of that word that is commonly used, they would say that glossolalia is the way that God speaks through His Holy Spirit today in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we speak with other tongues, glossolalia. There's no evidence of that particular Greek word, if it does even exist, and I have not found evidence of that, in the Word of God. It's just a made-up word, 
as far as I can tell, to describe what was taking place according to the Pentecostal faith. And I'm not trying to put them down. I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm just saying that there are many who have various opinions about these things that are recorded here, and they make up their doctrines based upon what they believe is the common experience of every believer. Some will even tell you as far as this, that if you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit of fire, then you are not a Christian. That's absolute blasphemy. That's not what the Word of God declares. But these all were. All 120 or so of these people, Mary, the mother of Jesus included, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had spent time with his disciples after his resurrection, and he breathed on them, John 20, and they received the Holy Spirit. He simply told them, as he breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you think that for any reason, that if Jesus said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, when he breathed on them, that they would not have received the Holy Spirit until 50 days later? No. Take that out of your mind. It happened then. They were filled then. They were baptized in the Spirit then. They became born again then. They were redeemed by the Spirit. They were regenerated by the Spirit at that time. This is a different experience. This is an additional experience to what they had already experienced. And it is different in the sense that here they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they have been empowered for a particular reason. This is the beginning of the church. This is a day when the church is born, the day, the day of Pentecost, when it has fully come, this day, among all of the days in the Jewish calendar, this day is a special day, and it's representative of that which is to follow. A harvest is about to begin to be experienced. We'll see that later on in our reading. We're not going to get to that portion of Scripture today. Obviously, I'm too wordy. But what we're going to do is we're going to see that there are over 3,000 at one time who are going to be saved. That's the first fruits that is part of this feast. This feast, the Feast of Pentecost, is a feast where they have a particular kind of offering. And the offering in this one feast is an offering of two loaves of bread. Well, they offer bread in others as well. That's not so particularly important, is it? Well, this is important because this bread that is being offered only on this feast is leavened bread. It has to represent something else other than unleavened bread. It has to represent mankind. Because mankind is sinful and needs salvation. It is a type of both Jew and Gentile, two loaves, being brought together as a wave offering unto the Lord as a harvest that is to come. It's a beautiful picture. And the harvest took place on that day when 3,000 souls got saved. Christ our first fruits. Now we have an addition on the day of Pentecost. 
And just a short while later, over 5,000 also were saved. The church is growing. The church is expanding. The church is still in Jerusalem. There's much work that needs to be done. But it's the beginning of the church here in Jerusalem. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture, illustration of the power of God in the lives of those who put their trust in Him and who are willing to accept that gift that He wants to give to all. And we'll see that also as we move forward in this text. To everyone, the gift is available. Now, they were all filled and they began to speak with other tongues. They didn't understand what it was that they were speaking, in other words. They knew the Aramaic of the day. They, some of them might have known some Hebrew, but not very many of them. By the way, Hebrew was a language that was indeed used in educated circles. The Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees in Jerusalem and all of Judea, many of those were well versed in the Hebrew tongue. But the people from Galilee, well, they were hicks. They weren't learned men. They knew perhaps the common language of the day, which was Greek. They knew maybe some Latin, but it wasn't a very particularly favorable language for them to learn. And they knew Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, but it's kind of a slang Hebrew. They had a dialect. They had an accent. They dressed differently than the people from Jerusalem. They were different than the upper class, if you will. But these were the people God chose. They spoke in other tongues. They didn't understand what they were saying. By that time, apparently they'd moved outside and they're still speaking in these languages. They don't know what those languages are. But as they're speaking, they're drawing a crowd. Apparently a crowd had heard the noise. They had heard that which these people had heard in the upper room, a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind. And they're coming now from all areas of the city because they're all there for the Feast of Pentecost. Large numbers of Jews are gathered together in Jerusalem around the temple area and everybody is wondering, what was that? And they begin to come around heading toward that direction where they heard the sound and they now see these 120 or so people speaking in various languages. Take note of what is said here. Verse 5. They were dwelling there in Jerusalem, all Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. The whole region of the world, then known region of the world, was present in Jerusalem. Jews from everywhere came for that feast. And when this sound occurred, it tells us in verse 6, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now here, Luke uses a different word. He doesn't use the word glossa. He uses the word Dialectos. Dialect. We have dialects. In our English language, we speak different kinds of ways depending on the region from where we come. Some of us from down east speak a down eastern dialect. I have a hard time sometimes listening to them. But I'm oftentimes accused of being a Downeaster because I don't always remember to pronounce my R's. And sometimes I put an R where there shouldn't be anything but an A, like idea. 
for idea. I don't know why. It just, it's main. That's what I do. But listen, they had no way of knowing those languages that they were speaking. That's the miracle that is taking place here. Everything about this is so supernatural, so marvelous, so God. He chose the time. He chose the place. He chose the method. And He works a great miracle in the hearts of many people on this day. Verse 7 says, They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? They recognize them, either by their accent or by their dress. They knew that these men were unlearned. They knew that these men and women were from the region of Galilee, outside of the circle of educated people. They were a bunch of country bumpkins. And what's all this about? How can it be that they're speaking languages that we all know to be our own dialects? Again, verse 8, How is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, glossi, the wonderful works of God. God is so powerful, so wonderful, so amazing. Every one of these people who were gathered around were listening. And they're hearing, wow, he just spoke about the works of God in my Parthian tongue. No, no, he just spoke about the works of God in my Cretan tongue. No, wait, he spoke in Latin. No, he spoke in Hebrew. No, he spoke in Egyptian. Wait a minute. He's speaking, they're speaking in all of these. What does this mean? That's what they're asking, by the way. They were all amazed, verse 12. And perplexed. I should think so. And they were saying to one another, what could this mean? That's a valid question. That's a true Inquiry. What does this mean? What is the purpose of this? How do you explain this? That's not the question. They want to know what's going on. What is going on with this? What's happening here? It's a valid question. But there were some who said, Hey, listen. These are full of new wine. Verse 13. They were mocking and said, These are full of new wine. What they're saying is, these guys, these women, they're all drunk. Don't listen to them. They're just, just gibberish. They had no idea, I use that tongue in cheek, what was going on, but they came to a conclusion. They said, hey, disregard all of this. This is just nonsense. They're drunk. Well, Peter Timid, fearful Peter, who couldn't stand up to a little slave girl to admit that he was with Christ before the resurrection, responds. Notice what he does. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, they all stood up, 
They were all in that area. They were all standing, but they gathered around together. They had a purpose now. They had a driven responsibility that was given to them supernaturally to proclaim something that needed to be heard to all who were present. And Peter knew it, and so did the others. But Peter was a spokesman. Peter stood up and began to speak. And first of all, he addresses the question. He says to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Verse 15, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now I want to submit to you two things here. Peter says, They're not drunk, as you suppose, Something else is going on here, and you need to understand what it is. And besides, it couldn't be drunk because it's only the third hour of the day, which means it was nine o'clock in the morning. By Hebrew reckoning, the day started in the evening before, and twelve hours later at six o'clock sunrise, then they counted from that day the third hour of the day of light. Roman counting of the count of the Time for each day began at midnight until the following midnight. Not so were the Jews. To the Roman mind, it was the ninth hour of the day. To the Hebrew mind, it was the third hour of the day. Nine o'clock in the morning. And Peter's saying, look, it's impossible. These guys couldn't be drunk because it's only the third hour. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Come on, guys, think about that. How could he be so certain that they wouldn't have gone into the bar at that hour and gotten drunk? and then come out into the temple area. It's because of the day. It could be because also that most of the wine drunk in those days was diluted wine that had very little alcoholic content. So it would have, and some people argued this, it would have been impossible for them to drink that much wine in order to get drunk that early in the day because their wine was so diluted. But there was such a thing as sweet wine, and that's actually the term that Luke is using here. And that particular kind of wine was used for the purpose of getting a little tipsy. It was there. They knew that. But what was Peter saying? He was saying, look, this is a special day. It's a holy day. Every faithful Jew on the face of the planet comes to Jerusalem if they are able to, to worship God. And none of them would participate in any beverage or meal before noontime on that particular day. And it's written in the customs of the Jews that that would be precisely what Peter would have meant by that. It's only the ninth hour of the day, or the third hour of the day in the Hebrew reckoning, and it's not likely that any one of them, including himself, would have gone to the bar or done anything else to consume any beverage or eat any meal until the middle of the day because they were worshiping the Lord in the temple. It was a very holy day for the Jewish men and women. So that having been said, Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, he said, it's impossible that these people are drunk, but let me explain to you what he is all about. Oh, good. Now we're going to get a lesson from an unlearned man, a Galilean, to explain some supernatural phenomenon that nobody understood. The only way that he could convince anybody would be for him to quote Scripture. And I submit to you, every one of us needs to understand this, that you must defend 
any doctrine that you present on the basis of what the Bible says. No other basis but the Word of God. Remember when Paul on the second missionary journey was going from Philippi down to Thessalonica and then to Berea. When he came to Berea, he presented the Word of God. And what did they do after he spoke to them about the things that he was teaching in all of the various places that he had been going? They went to the Word of God. Why? To see if what he was saying was so. Compare Scripture to Scripture. You can't take Scripture out of context. You can't read it in one passage and say, Oh, there it is. It says this here. So it must mean that we can believe this doctrine. But that doctrine doesn't line up with the rest of what the Word of God says. But that's no matter because this one portion of Scripture does. Wait a minute. You're taking that portion of Scripture completely out of context and you're saying that's doctrine? That is blasphemy. Paul told his followers... Listen carefully. Paul told his followers in Galatians, if anyone, whether man or angel, preaches any other gospel than what we have told you, and the we is the apostles, anyone who teaches anything else than what you've heard from us, let him be anathema, accursed. That's a pretty strong language for that person needs to be recognized as a blasphemer and discounted from the true church of God. Peter wanted to make sure that he was presenting truth. And so he goes to the word of truth to present what he is now experiencing and wants them to understand. Basis from biblical truth. That's how it must be. I believe it's right for us to take this kind of a stand. That if it's taught by Jesus through the Gospels, and he had many, many teachings that we can rely on because it's the Word of God, if it's taught by the Apostles in the writings of the Epistles, and there are many, many places, either Paul or Peter or James, John, every one of them, if it's experienced in the book of Acts, and we're going through this book And we'll see evidence of the power of the Lord in the lives of believers as it is represented in the Word of God through this great book. Those are the three places we can go and rely on them. You can go to the Old Testament also, but the Old Testament doesn't give us the revelation that the New Testament gives us. It gives us principles, it gives us precepts, it gives us commands, it gives us promises, and we should be faithful to read the Old Testament and to believe them and apply them where it is to be applied. But what we need to do when we're dealing with doctrines in the church is go to the source, and that is Jesus, the apostles, and the book of Acts, to verify. If it doesn't follow into those categories, then, my friends, we're going down a path that we should not be going. And I say that because the Word of God declares to us that there will be many voices, many voices, in the last days, that will mislead, that will misguide, that will cause people to follow every wind of doctrine, being tossed to and fro like a boat without a rudder. Don't go there. Be zeroed in on what the Word of God specifically says. And don't listen to anyone who says, well, it says this, but it means that. That's not 
the way you understand the Word of God. People of God, listen. These last days, there are many, many voices, and we can get sucked up into a lot of different things. And I submit to you that we all need to be very careful where we go and under whom we place ourselves. But Peter here is saying, this is the Word of God. It was spoken by the prophet Joel. What you're seeing, I can explain it. It's from God's Word. And by the way, he did not have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament. But he's using the Old Testament to demonstrate to them the reality of what's taking place. And let's read through what he says. Because it includes more than just what was going on at that time. Verse 17 says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. In the last days. You know, Peter believed that he was in the last days. Do you understand that? He tells us that in First Peter as well, in the writing that he gives of that great epistle. The last days are inclusive of all the time from the beginning of the church until the time that we're taken home to be with the Lord. I will pour out all on all. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. Now, if we stop there, we could say Peter was saying, this is happening now, today. This is a fulfillment. But he never says this is a fulfillment of what Joel said. He just said, this is that which Joel said. Again, the implication is, Joel spoke of such things. And you need to understand that this is a part of what Joel did speak on. But there's more. And he now advances into yet future time, beyond our own time. And he says these words in verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. He says, first of all, these are the last days, but he's saying there is coming a great and awesome day of the Lord. That is yet to come, folks. That is what we had been spending all of our time with over the last several weeks in First and Second Thessalonians. The culmination of God's judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. The day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment. That's where Christ will baptize with fire those who are unbelievers. But he's baptizing believers here. Peter continues, and we'll stop at verse 21. It shall come to pass that whoever... I love that word, whoever. That means anybody. That isn't a selective word. It is all-inclusive. Whoever. That includes me. I'm not worthy of it, but it includes me. It includes you who have believed, everyone, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Isn't that what we read when we read Mark's Gospel? Let me just go back there and read it again with you, for you. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Those are Jesus' words. He who believes will be saved. He says also, and be baptized. Now, baptism does not save us. It's the believing that saves us. Being baptized is proof that we believe. We love the fact that Jesus gave us commands 
things to observe. Baptism is one of them. The taking of the bread and the cup is another. But they don't save. Simple truth. You come to Christ believing in what Christ has done. And when you do, He enters in. His Spirit is in you at that moment of conversion. The Spirit has been with you before that moment, drawing you to Himself. And this experience that Peter will say, it's available to everyone, it comes upon you. Remember, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until that which is promised has come upon you. Those three prepositions, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, very specific. He's with you before salvation. He's in you at the point of conversion. He comes upon you for empowerment. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a place to end our time together here this morning. Are you saved? Do you know that you are? Have you made certain that you have called out to Him? In desperation, I would say, would be appropriate because you are dead in your sins and you've not recognized the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross. He, a sinless, the sinless, the only sinless one, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world came to this earth and died upon the cross of Calvary for the sole purpose of extending the gift of salvation to anyone who would receive it by faith. It's so simple. It's so plain. It's so utterly amazing that God would do such a wonderful work without our having to do anything to receive it except believe. That's why the book of Ephesians tells us so matter-of-factly it is by grace through faith that you are saved, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. But it is God who works in you, His perfect will. Once you're saved, you are going to do His work. And in order for you to do the work of God in these last days, guess what, people? We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And He's willing to come upon you every time to refill and refill and refill again. That's why we sang that song this morning, Fill us. Fill us. Fill us more. Empty us and fill us. Empty us of our sin. Empty us of our filth, our ungodliness, our unbelief. Empty us of our deceitfulness, of our thoughts that are misleading us into going down a wrong path. Empty us of all that hinders us from following after you and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Do you agree with that concept of requesting that kind of filling every single day? Perhaps it would be better if we said every single moment of our lives, with every breath that we take, seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. These last days, it's so very, very important for us to be filled. And I submit to you that He's willing to do so. We just need to ask. Is that too much for our God to ask of us?